A cartoon from uh, years ago shows a man who was standing at the pearly gates. Peter was there, and uh, he's waving, Peter's waving this long sheet of paper. And the man in the cartoon, he's looking rather, I don't know if it's dismay or terror, but he's yelling, sins? What do you mean sins? I thought those were lifestyle choices. Sin. It has to be one of the most, if not the most, uncomfortable subject for a sermon. Right? Anybody agree? This is, this is, this is right up there. Some preachers simply want to preach to inspire, to make people feel good about themselves. And honestly, it is uncomfortable for us to hear that we're, we aren't as good as we think we are, right? That's, that's pretty uncomfortable. It's unsettling to be confronted about our failings, but I do believe that it's a great, it's a great disservice to us if we ignore subjects like this one. If we skip over tough passages of scripture like this one, I can tell you this much tonight. God does not ignore sin. And so if God doesn't ignore sin, neither should his church. Amen? Especially a church that is looking to move forward. So here's tonight's big idea. It's just simply for any church To move forward, sin must be dealt with and not overlooked. We've been in a summer series, Forward Church on the Move. And uh, we've been looking at the first six chapters of the book of Acts. Been digging in here, doing a case study on a church moving forward. Here's the early church in Jerusalem. It is a church on the move. And here's what we've learned so far. We've learned that a church on the move is one that is following orders, prioritizing prayer, operating by the Spirit, making disciples, functioning in community, overcoming opposition. And tonight, from Acts chapter 5, we see that a church on the move is one that is dealing with sin. And so if you miss some of those messages, go back online and you can go back and, and you can watch these messages as we unfold this church on the move in the early part of Acts. And I want you to notice how chapter 5 begins. Look at the first word of chapter 5. Chapter 5 begins with a conjunction. Now, I don't know about you, but I was taught in grammar school that you don't start sentences with conjunctions. I mean, I still do it. But the chapter starts with a conjunction, the word but. The word connects the great things that were happening at the end of chapter 4. If you just scan through chapter 4, verses uh, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, down to verse uh, 37, man, the church is clicking. Yeah, there had been some opposition from, from without, But the church internally, man, there was great power. There was great grace. People were being filled with the Holy Spirit. Good things were happening. 
And then all of a sudden, chapter 5 starts with a but, and the whole thing gets awkward. <laughs> the whole thing gets uncomfortable. Here we go from this, this, this church on the move to all of a sudden, a church that has to stop dead in its tracks, literally, because something was wrong on the inside. Let me say something. Nothing will stop a church dead in its tracks like sin will. Let me say it again. Nothing will stop a church on the move, a church that is moving forward, dead in its tracks like sin will. So let's investigate what happened. We got a couple dead bodies here. Let's investigate exactly what has happened. And to do so, let's start with the spouse's iniquity. And here's what we're going to see here. That sin is an ongoing hazard in every church. Say that with me. Sin is an ongoing hazard in every church. So what's going on in chapter 5? Well, you have a husband and a wife in the church of Jerusalem. They sell a piece of property and then they give an offering to the church out of the proceeds of the sale, but they didn't give it all. They kept back part of the money. So let me ask you tonight, church, was that wrong? Was that a sin for them to not give all of it? And the answer is, oh, I'm hearing some yeses. How many of you think it's a no? That's the correct answer. That's the, the, the sin here was not a matter of giving or keeping. No pledges had been signed. There was no command given to sell their property and to give it all uh, to the Lord's work. Ananias, listen, did not have to sell his property. Peter says there in verse 4, look at verse 4. He says, wasn't it yours while you possessed it? What's he saying? He's saying, Ananias, your property belonged to you. It was yours. When you had it, it was yours. And once he sold it, he was under absolutely no constraint to give it all to God's work. He said, Peter then goes on to say, after it was sold, this is verse 4, wasn't it at your disposal? What's he saying? Ananias, it wasn't, you weren't under any obligation to give it all away. Ananias, you were free to keep it. You were free to give part of it. You were, to free, you were free to give it all away. Ananias had the freedom. He could, he didn't have to do what he did here. He was acting on his own free will. Please understand the point of this story is not a lesson in generosity. That's not what this lesson is about. This is not a chapter in the Bible to go to, uh, you know, if you want to learn about stinginess or, you know, not, you know, being generous in your giving. This is not a subtle or not so subtle kick in the pants to sell everything that you have and give it all away. That's not what this chapter is. All right? So if any, if you ever hear a, some TV preacher get up and start preaching that way from this passage, you know, time out. That's, that's not what the passage is about here. Look, if you want to learn about giving, there's plenty of other scriptures that fill in the blanks, right? There's a lot of other scriptures on it. But know this, God 
is as great a respecter of our property as he is of our persons. God doesn't covet any man's money. Do you believe that? Do you know that? Well, be assured of that tonight. What is not freely given out of a spirit of of generosity and cheerfulness and integrity, God neither needs nor wants. And so uh, what is going on here in this chapter is not a matter of giving and keeping. It is a matter of deceiving. It is a matter of lying. That's what Peter says. He says it twice in verses 3 and 4. Both Ananias and Sapphira, husband and wife, both of them lie about it. They're claiming to have given it all, all the proceeds, but they weren't. They kept back part of it. So what's going on? Well, lying, deceiving. That's what's going on. And lying and deceiving is wrong. Lying and deceiving is sin. Listen, even if you have your fingers crossed behind your back. Did you ever do that when you're a kid? Right? Cross your finger and you're like, you know you're telling a lie, but somehow this is going to like make it okay. And you can do a little research on that, you know, where that kind of came from and why people thought that that would kind of keep them safe from the evil spirits out there, you know, telling a lie, somehow crossing their fingers behind the back. But listen, whether you have your fingers crossed, your toes crossed, or your eyes crossed, listen, lying is a sin. This is what the scripture says. Exodus 20. Do not give false testimony. Thou shalt not lie, right, in the old King James. The Lord hates six things. This is Proverbs. Arrogant eyes, a lying tongue a lying witness who gives false testimony. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, put away lying, speak truth, each one to his neighbor. So lying is a sin. What's going on here? Well, there's two things about this act of lying that we find in Acts 5. First of all, it was a premeditated act. Peter uses the word planned here in verse number five. Like, You planned this thing in your heart. I'm sure that it seemed to them not to be a very big deal, right? I mean, think think this through. They were given a generous, I mean, it had to be a pretty decent sum. If they sold everything, they they were, I'm sure in their mind they're thinking, this is generous. What's the big, I mean, if, what's the big deal? I mean, we're, we're still doing something good, aren't we? And sometimes we, we rationalize this way. When it comes to things like lying and, and other sorts of sins, we kind of rationalize it in our head. And we think, well, the end justifies the means. I'm, I mean, I'm trying to do something good with it. So I'm sure in their, in their mind, as they were planning this out, they were looking at the good they were trying to do. They weren't even focusing on the fact that they were going to be de- trying to deceive God about it. It's pretty easy to deceive, our, deceive ourselves into such thinking, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, we, we make justifications for things in our head all the time. Don't we? We kind of play little tricks. You know, the good, the, good out, the good I'm doing outweighs the bad that's involved in this. But it was wrong. And they planned this thing out. It was a premeditated act. It was also a proud act. Why? Why? 
why not just bring the offering? Why, say, why dis, try to deceive and say, hey, this, you know, we sold it. This is all of it. Why do that? Well, I can only really think of one reason. What is it? Pride, right? Look back at chapter 4 for a minute in verse 36. This comes in connection with Joseph, otherwise known as Barnabas, who we'll read about later in Acts. Look what happens in 36 of chapter 4. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus by birth, the one of the apostles called Barnabas, which is translated son of encouragement, sold a field he owned, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it's connected. The very next thing that we read in Acts is, but Ananias and Sapphira, right? So evidently, it was knowledge in the church, at least to some including Ananias and Sapphira, that Barnabas had done this, that there were people inside the church doing this very thing. If you go back to Acts chapter 2, you can kind of see how that fits into what was going on in the, in the church of Jerusalem at that time. So perhaps hearing what Barnabas did, perhaps seeing how that sparked some interest in people, they thought, Hey, let's get in on that. This will make us look good. This will perhaps give us some influence with, with Peter. And for, in some way, they wanted to bask in the glow that surrounded Barnabas. So it was a proud act. However, whatever our motive is in whatever type of sin in our life, what we have to come to realize is that sin has a corrupting element to it in our lives and in the church. All it takes is a little sin. I mean, some might even call what they call this lie by Ananias and Sapphira, maybe this would be a little white lie to grow up, you know, being taught about white lies, you know. What's a white lie? Well, it's not that big of a deal, right? A little white lie, Everybody does it, right? So we can come to overlook those things if we think they're small sins. Paul wrote this to the church at Galatia. He said, a little leaven, leaven represents sin in the Bible, leavens the whole lump, just a small, right? You know how this works if you've ever done baking, just a small amount of yeast in the loaf affects the entire loaf. And that's what Paul is getting at there. Just a little bit of sin influences, has a profound influence in us and on those around us. I like what what Brant Hansen wrote in uh, The Men We Need. He says this. He says, "No, uh, no one operates in a vacuum. There's no such thing as private sin. See if you agree with this. Who you uh, are reverberates through your home and neighborhood and the world. Even the sins in our head aren't private. I mean, do we think that way? A lot of times we, we think, well, it's just in my head. It's not really affecting anybody. It's not hurting. You hear that a lot today. It's not hurting anybody. But Brant makes the case that, yeah, it is. He says, 
Even the sins in our head aren't private. Mine affect my attitude. They keep me from being unconcerned about other people. They make me a jerk in seemingly unrelated ways. What we do and who we are have consequences that ripple outward whether we like it or not. It's just a little white lie. It's just a little sin. It's, I'm not really hurting anybody. I mean, the end justifies the means. I mean, there's, there's some good in it for me or for someone else. But we have to learn as, a, as the church of Jesus Christ that, that this is not how God views sin. This is not how we are to view sin. James says that when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Sin is corruptive. Sin is destructive. Ross Rhodes wrote this. He said, churches suffer because of the tolerated presence of sins, such as gossip, envy, pride, hate, coveting, and the lust of the imagination. But whether obvious or hidden, any sin injures the church. The Bible teaches that the church is the body of Christ, and when one part suffers, the whole body suffers. So the effect of sin goes far beyond the individual who commits it. Think about that. The sin goes far beyond the individual who commits it. No wonder our churches today are so often weak and ineffective. You see, what we think sometimes is, we think, well, well, churches are weak and ineffective because, well, they, they don't have the money or they, they have this disadvantage or that disadvantage. You know, we, we tend to look at those sorts of things when what we ought to look at is our, our own lives. We ought to just look in the mirror. You see, sin in my life will have an effect on this church just as much as sin in your life. Have you ever considered that before? Have you? Well, that's what we're learning here in Acts chapter 5. Paul wrote this to the church at Corinth. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. Wow, what an indictment. <laughs> He's like, and there are people who don't know God simply because as the church, you're living in sin and it turns the world off. There's a ripple effect. And so redeemed as we are, what we have to all come to realize is this. We are all still vulnerable to sinning. Can I get one amen? amen. Aren't we? We are vulnerable to sinning. We, we won't do a little confessional tonight. I am so glad we don't have a confessional booth in our tradition, where people come and tell me all their sins. Sometimes people do, you know. Sometimes I feel like it gets it off their chest or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's something about, James says something about confessing our faults to one another, right? There's that whole thing. But, but the truth of the matter is, we all know this. We all know our own vulnerability to sin. In fact, we could all, I'm sure, look back over the last six days, seven days since we were together, and if we were all honest, we'd all have to say, you know what? There was a time or two, 
times five, I don't know, whatever the, whatever the equation is there, that we broke God's law, we sinned against God. We have to realize that. We shouldn't look at Acts chapter five with binoculars, Ananias and Sapphira, oh my word, I can't believe what they did. Let's not read the word of God with binoculars to look around at other people. Let's use the word of God as a mirror to look at our own lives. I'd be a fool to sit up here tonight and to say, oh, you bunch of sinners out there, get right. I'm, a, I'm the pastor around here. I'm, you know me, I never sin. <laughs> yeah. Foolish, right? Wouldn't it be foolish for us to sit here and try to put on a deceptive act like sin is beyond us? It's really helpful for us to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I'm prone to sin just like Ananias and Sapphira. Does that mean that you could commit any sin? Look, I would like to think that I am incapable of strangling my grandson or one of my children, right? I would like to think that I am incapable of doing that because I love them dearly, right? I'm I'm incapable of doing that, right? Would you agree? I, I don't think I could do that. But the truth of the matter is, is if you get someone angry enough, right? We can do some pretty stupid things in the heat of the moment. I think what I'm trying to get at is it's really important for us not to have this religious air about us that, you know, we're above sin and we, we, don't, we don't have a flesh that we have to be on guard about, but that somehow we're beyond that now. No, it's important for us every day to get up and look, a, look in the mirror and be reminded that we're a human being and any given day we could go off the rails. All it takes is a little bit of planning in our heart and we can find ourselves in a train wreck doing some things that we will later regret, right? And haven't we all been there, right? So redeemed as we are, we're all still vulnerable to sinning. The sin of Ananias and Sapphira reminded the church that Christians aren't immune. And no matter how strong a Christian's faith might be, we're still not perfect. But listen, while we're only human and while we are susceptible to sinning, the truth is, is that by God's grace, we have been given the power to say no to sin. If you are a believer, we have been made free from sin. We do not have to sin. Those those chains have been broken. Now we can We can go back into bondage to it. We can surrender ourselves to sin. And you know what? All it takes is a couple, right? And then you find yourself wrapped up in the chains again. But Jesus set us free from the, the power of sin and the penalty of sin. He set us free from that. And so when it comes to sinning, let's stop saying that it's not that bad. Stop thinking about our little lies or or our little stealing here or there or or our little thoughts of lust in our head that somehow it's not that bad. Stop rationalizing that it's okay because everybody's doing it today. And let's stop thinking, well, God's going to forgive me anyway. Will God forgive you? Yes, he will. God loves you. 
Nothing can separate you from his love. But the Bible also tells us that if we are in Christ, we are to cleanse ourselves from every impurity of the flesh and spirit. Right? So let's not rationalize. Let's not, let's not explain it away in our head. Let's own up to it. That's, that's what Ananias and Sapphira did not do. They kept the lie going, right? They died lying. Let's not play that same game. So as we investigate this, first of all, you have to look at the spouse's iniquity, their sin. And then what we have to see here, number two, is we have to see Satan's influence here. And here's what we see, that the enemy looks for a way to infiltrate the church. It doesn't come as a surprise that Satan played a part in these events. If you look at chapter three, Peter says, hey, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Satan is always looking for an open door in the church. Did you know that? Like a roaring lion, man, he is roaming around and he is looking, he's seeking, he wants someone that he can devour. And you know what? Peter, the guy talking here in chapter five, Peter knows what he's talking about here. Why? Because Peter, Peter had a little run in with Satan himself. Before Jesus went to the cross, he said to Peter, he said, Peter, listen, remember Peter's all like, Super Christian, going so all super Christian, like, I'll, I'll never deny, you know, I'm, I'll go to you with the, to the death. And Jesus is like, yeah, well, Peter, listen. Tonight you're going to deny me three times. Jesus told him, look, Satan has desired to sift you as wheat. And we know what Peter did. Peter knew something about Satan's attacks, and later he would write in, in the epistle of 1 Peter, be sober-minded, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is roaring, uh, ro- prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone he can devour. Remember that. Remember that. Satan is our adversary. He's the great adversary of the church. Satan hates the church because Satan hates God. Satan has been on a mission to destroy anything God made that's good. Your life, your family, your church, our country, whatever it is, man, Satan is on a mission to destroy it. I'm so glad to know that the Bible tells us Satan will not prevail against the church. Amen. Jesus said this to Peter in Matthew 16, 18. Satan's not, the gates of hell aren't going to prevail against the church. But listen, that will not stop him from doing everything he can to infiltrate the church, disrupt it, corrupt it, confuse it, weaken it, threaten it, disengage it, divide it, or silence it. He looks for every opportunity to get in and stop what God is doing in his church. How does he go about it? Well, sometimes he does it through external influences like we see in chapter four, right? He uses the, the religious, the false religious teachers and those outside the church to bring opposition against the church. And you read church history over the last 2,000 years, man. The devil has used everything in his arsenal outside the church to attack the church. 
Even today, there are places in our world where the church is under attack and Christians are martyred, right? And churches are burnt and, and Christians are, are, are persecuted simply because they are the church of Jesus Christ. I'm thankful that we don't experience that here in this country. Praise God for our freedoms and, and we should thank God for all of that. But you know, Satan doesn't just work from external influences. He also works from and through internal influences, right? Through us. He looks for ways on the inside. Up to this point, in their brief history, it had all been from the external, and now in chapter 5, Satan is seeking to corrupt the church internally. It's a tactic he's used throughout the Bible, right? Balaam, Achan, Samson, David, Solomon. Uh, He even used it with uh, the Roman Emperor Constantine. You know, The, the worst thing that happened to the church was the emperor legalizing, you know, making the church an official, the official religion of the empire. That was the worst thing that happened. Church became so corrupted because of that. And Peter says, Satan has filled your heart to lie. You know what that implies? Do you see it there in verse number three? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie? Here's what's being implied. What's being implied is that Ananias had in some way opened himself up to Satan's influence and control in his life. I would surmise it was through some sin. There was some unconfessed sin in Ananias' life that Satan used to gain a foothold in his life. And through that, Satan was able to gain influence in Ananias' life. And that should come as a warning to us, right? In fact, if you, if you look at your Bible, right, in my Bible, you can almost look directly across the page at verse 31 of chapter 4. And it says that when they prayed, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. You see it? And then in chapter 5, Ananias is, Satan has filled his heart. It's the same word. The word filled, there's the same word we find in Ephesians where, where Paul writes, um, be filled with the Spirit. It's the very same word. And the idea is be under the influence, under the control of the Holy Spirit. And the truth of the matter is, is that even as Christians, if we allow sin into our life, we are giving Satan influence and control in our lives. Unconfessed sin leaves the door open for Satan to gain greater influence on our lives and our church. So what do we need to do? We need to be on guard. Peter writes this later in his epistle. He says, resist him. Speaking of Satan, resist him firm in the faith. How can we as individuals, as believers, and as a church, how can we resist Satan? Well, first of all, I believe we have to be humble. What was the sin that that caused Satan to fall as the highest ranked angel out of heaven. What was it? It was pride. 
And man, as soon as we start getting a little self-confident, as soon as we start becoming arrogant, even in a religious kind of way, even this, like, well, I read my Bible. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of like a super Christian, you know? As soon as we start thinking that way, and it becomes self-confident, kind of an arrogant thing, man, that's like, that's an open door for Satan. He works with pride every day. He loves to see pride. But if we will be humble, if we will humble ourselves before God every day and come before him and say, God, I need you today. I'm going to fail and make a total mess of my life. If I don't have your power and your strength and your spirit filling me, man, I'm gonna, I could make a mess of my life today. God, I need you. I need your life to flow through me. Live out your life through me today, Jesus. If we will humble ourselves like that with God, the beginning of each day, and humbly walk with him to the day. Listen, that is one of the first important steps of resisting the devil. What else can we do to resist him? I think secondly, we can be ruled by the word. Remember, Jesus was tempted by Satan. How did Jesus resist the devil? He did so with three words. Do you remember what they were? It is written. Every one of the attacks that Satan made against Jesus, Jesus went to the word. He quoted the word of God. He used the word of God to resist the devil. Our problem isn't a gap between what we know and don't know. Here's our problem. It's between what we know and what we do. submitting ourselves, living under the rule of God's word. Listen, you, you can resist the devil by, by simply humbling yourself before God, looking to him for power and strength and victory and overcoming, and then by simply submitting yourself every day to the word of God. Every morning when you pick up the word of God, always walk away with something that you are supposed to apply to your life and act on that day. You know what I find a lot of times is that what I read in the morning is just exactly what I needed to fight some particular battle in my own mind, heart, or life on that particular day. So be ruled by the word of God. And then third, be spirit-filled. Be spirit-filled. Because when we're filled by the, by the Holy Spirit, right, it means that his power is within us. His life is within us. His fruit is being born out in our life. And so when we're filled with the Spirit, that is a natural resistance to Satan and what he wants to do in your life. So resist him. Resist him. Well, as we continue investigating this, Acts 5, here's what we see next. The sovereign's insight, God's insight. Here's what we see. God's grace doesn't make God overlook sin in the church. God is doing amazing things in the church at Jerusalem. The church was on mission. Disciples were being made. They were growing in grace. Look at chapter 4 and verse 33. Man, great grace was on all of the men. Miracles were happening. Prayers were being answered. Good things were going on. But 
but don't miss this. The good that was going on inside the church didn't make God overlook the bad inside the church. I think sometimes it's easy for us to look around at our life and see, you know, God's blessed me, he's, he's provided for me, and we, as a church, we could, we could stop and think, well, look at, look at how God's blessing our church. Look at, look at how he's blessing us uh, as we're able to, to build and, and, and the money that he's provided for us. I mean, you could, we could look at that and think, hey, it's all good. But we can't for a moment think that just because God has provided for us and just because God has been so good and gracious to us that somehow now we have a free pass to do whatever we want, right? There's no, there's no free pass. We're still God's people. We're still his possession. We're, we're to live in a way that honors him. Why? Because first of all, God sees all things. Look what he says here. Why is it that you plan this thing in your heart. God sees everything, even what's going on in our heart that nobody else knows about. The Lord said to Samuel, humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Isn't it true that we can appear one way on the outside and be harboring sin on the inside? Right. I mean, we don't walk into church and say, hey, let me tell you what I did this week and run down a laundry list, right? <laughs> we don't do that. I don't know if that'd be a good idea. But, but why do we then think that somehow whatever we have on the inside, we can sing, we can pray, we can gather, and somehow that doesn't really matter. I guess deep down inside, we know it matters, right? And God sees it. And God knows what's going on in our heart. God sees all things. God knows all things, every detail of our life, every detail of our business deals, our motives, our thoughts, our intentions. Nothing is hidden from God. David knew it. And he said, Lord, you've searched me. You've known me. You know when I sit down, when I stand up. You understand my thoughts from afar away. You observe my travels and my uh, rest. You are aware of all my ways before a word is on my tongue. You know all about it, Lord. Isn't that crazy? God knows everything about us. In other words, we, we can't hide anything from God. Nothing. God sees all things. God knows all things. And we also see in this passage that God judges all things. Peter says, you've lied to people. You have not lied to people, but to God. Peter put their sin in its true light as sin against God. They had tried to deceive Peter, but Peter puts it in the light of, hey, look, nothing compares trying to deceive me, Peter's like, you, this is against God. You're lying to God. And look what it says, verse five. And when he heard these words, Ananias dropped dead. What? Huh? Drop dead? Yep. 
the sentence was death with no time for repentance. Later, Sapphira, Sapphira, his wife, comes in to see Peter. She lies too, and she drops dead as well. And the Holy Spirit acted swiftly in judgment. The Holy Spirit did something that Jesus never did in his earthly ministry. Jesus, Jesus never did anything of that sort during his earthly ministry. Does this seem drastic to you? Wow. The truth of the matter is sin is always serious business with God. I know, like I said, we can, we can take it lightly, but God doesn't take it lightly. God's still holy. God is still righteous. A righteous God who deals with rebellion. Proverbs 19, a false witness will not go unpunished and the one who utters lies perishes. Here's a sobering passage from John's revelation. He says, but cowards, the faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and get this, and all liars will have their share in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. Man, it's a serious matter to tell a lie. It's a serious matter to tell a lie to a judge. We know that, right? What happens if you purge yourself in court? Man, that's a serious offense, depending on who you are, I guess, nowadays. But you know it's even more serious, and it's serious beyond words, to lie to God. And truthfully, I suppose Ananias and Sapphira, they didn't view it this way. They didn't think of their sin in that light when they planned their deception. And we rarely see our sin in its true light. I mean, we have our pretty little euphemisms for sin, right? We call it all these different things. It's just who I am. You know, we make these, these excuses. But church, if there's anything we should take away from this tonight is that God judges sin and, and he judges sin. Listen, 10 out of 10 times, God judges sin, even those hidden secret sins. Solomon wrote, for God will bring every act to judgment, including every hidden thing, whether good or evil. Paul wrote to the church at, at Corinth that, that there were some in the church that slept because, in other words, they had died because of unconfessed sin. It's hard to it's hard to comprehend. It's hard to bear to consider this. But God does not take every sinner out suddenly, does he? Right? It's a good thing. Because none of us would be breathing right now, would we? It's a good thing that God doesn't deal with every one of our sins like he dealt with their sin here. And by the way, all sudden deaths do not mean that they had sinned, you know, that that was the reason for their sudden death. Don't, don't go down that road. However, there are times when God removes a sinner suddenly from the earth, and Proverbs says that. But one thing is certain. God loves his children too much to let us go on sinning. I'd encourage you later to read Hebrews chapter 12 because it talks about God as our loving heavenly father, that he just can't let us go on living in sin and so he's going to chasten us and correct us 
for our own good because he wants to produce righteousness and godliness, holiness in our lives. And so rather than trying to hide our sin, what we should do is confess our sin. We should look in the mirror and not try to be deceptive about our sin, but we should own up to our sin and confess it to God. And, and that brings us to this fourth part of our examination tonight, what we see from Acts 5, and that is the saint's introspection. Here's the thought. Inner examination is a healthy and needful exercise for the church. Maybe tonight you're sitting here and you're thinking, whoa, this is scary stuff. I mean, time out, Pastor Dave. This is not exactly the sermon I came to hear tonight. I was hoping for something a bit more encouraging, something that would, that would help me leave here tonight feeling like the weight of the world was lifted off my shoulders, not like, oh man, whoo, I get it. I get it. Let me tell you something. When I go to the doctor or the dentist, I want good news. How about you? Anybody? I want good news. Uh, several years ago, I had a doctor who had the nerve to tell me that if they didn't like, cut me open, I was going to die. The gall. You know what I mean? Like That is not the news I went to hear. That's not the news... I wanted to hear, but you know something? That was the news I needed to hear. Because if they didn't cut me open, I was going to die. Who wants to go to the doctor? Have you been to the dentist recently, right? Man alive. It's like they're just looking for some bad news to give you, right? New, little filling, a little bit of, little crown there, you know, cha-ching, 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 right? They're looking for some bad to give you. Look, that's not what we're doing here tonight. But it is important that we, we do come to terms and that we, we reflect. And this is what happened in the church because it says in verse 11 that, that after these events happened, that great fear came on the whole church. I would, I would imagine that there were some people thinking, oh boy, oh boy, I better, I better watch my steps. I better be careful. I better confess that sin that's in my life. And that's exactly the right response. That is the response, church, that we should have tonight. That's the response I hope that you'll have tonight. Let me leave you with this. Jesus died for sin. Amen. He died for sin. He died, and when he died on that cross, he took our sins in his body on the cross. And that in Christ, those who, who by faith trust in his provision on the cross, cross for salvation, when, when a person places their faith and trust in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. I don't know what you've done, I can tell you this, we've all lied, right? We've all lied. How many lies do you have to tell to be a liar? This one. We're all liars. We all are. You can be forgiven. Whatever you've done, whatever the sin is, 
This is why God, this is what grace is all about. Grace is the fact that God is willing to save us simply because of what his son, the innocent one, did for us on the cross. So don't walk out of here thinking, oh my goodness, what an awful God he is. No, walk out of here thinking that he's a holy God who must judge sin, and he chose to judge all sin through his own son. And all we have to do is place our faith and our trust in what his son did. And in a moment, in an instant, we can have a clean slate completely forgiven. We will never stand before God for our sin in condemnation for our sin as a believer. When we stand before God, he will see the sacrifice, the blood of his son, the forgiveness that he's given us by his grace because of what his son did for us. So don't walk out of here thinking you're doomed with sin. No, walk out of here with your knees bowed to the cross and saying, God, I need your forgiveness and cleansing. Thank you for dying for my sin. And if you're a believer here tonight, let's recognize that, okay, we've been forgiven of all of our sin, but that doesn't give us a license now under grace to go do whatever we want. Even little white lies with our fingers crossed behind our back, no. And that when we sin, it has an effect, a ripple effect not only in our lives, in our homes, but also in our church, in our community, the people that we come in contact with. And so you can be forgiven at the cross. Call on his name. Lord, I believe that you died for me. I believe that your sacrifice on the cross was enough to save me. Would you forgive me and save me from my sin and give me eternal life? You can walk out of here completely forgiven. Completely forgiven. And if you don't, it's only on you. It's not on God. The offer is available. All you have to do is accept it by faith. Look, if you've accepted that by faith, and listen, then I think we should close with this prayer. Psalm 139, search me, God, know my heart, test me, and know my thoughts, and see if there is any offensive way in me. Isn't that a good prayer to pray? David prayed it. And what I would suggest that we do is we bow our heads and close our eyes. Could we just do that for a minute? Would you just, or maybe you need to look at the screen and, and, and just in your own head, think it and pray it. But take a minute and pray this to God and say, God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for forgiving me of my sin at the cross. And Lord, is there anything in my life? Am I, am I walking in any sort of disobedience? Maybe you've been justifying it. Maybe you've been overlooking it, rationalizing it. Everybody's doing it. Look, God sees, he knows, and what God wants to do is forgive. And so let's just bow our hearts and our heads to God. 